Hello, I'm Net88. Welcome to my podcast where I chat to geocachers to learn more about this amazing game. Today I am sitting down again to talk to Captain Terror because it is the one year anniversary of the podcast and Captain Terror was my first guest, so I thought it'd be nice to get him along for this special episode. Today we are going to be answering some questions from new geocachers because the whole point of this podcast was to help new geocachers learn more about the game. Thank you for coming along today, Captain Terror. Hey, no worries. And congratulations on one year. I know uh, every time I get along to an event that we've been able to have recently, people are talking about your podcast. I see it get shared. It's clearly a great thing. I enjoy listening as well. So congratulations, Nat. Thank you so much. Thank you. And thanks for helping me get it off the ground. So I've grabbed eight questions from new geocachers from one of the Facebook groups I am part of, and I thought that we could just go through them and answer them in what we think the right response is. Obviously, our thoughts aren't every experienced geocacher's idea, but, you know, we have 22 and a half years of geocaching experience between us. Oh, well, okay. <laughs> <laughs> so we could probably answer these pretty pretty well, I think. Yeah, we'll share some experience. Awesome. But before we do, I recently had an episode on geocaching goals, and I was wondering if I could ask if you had any goals for yourself for 2021. I do, I do. And I actually struggled because last year I set a bunch of goals for myself and then I achieved them all. The big one for me was finishing my fourth DT loop. Uh, and then this year I was like, well, what am I going to do? And I realised it's been about three or four years since I've ever found more than 200 geocaches in a year. So I'm going to aim to find 220-something geocaches and cross the 7,000 mark. It's the first time I've ever set a pure numbers goal, so here we go. Apparently it's about the numbers now. <laughs> Again, yes. <laughs> <laughs> That's great. I hope to see you achieve that goal. One of the questions that I get asked the most by new geocaches is what are the types of geocaches? I know there is a full description of each geocache type in the Help Centre, and I will share a link to the Help Centre in the episode notes for anyone that hasn't come across that yet. But I think that we could probably go through some of the main types of geocaches that we come across and give just kind of a, a general description of them. Yeah, right. The first geocache type on the list is the traditional cache. Captain Terra, what is a traditional cache? It's the one with the green icon. <laughs> <laughs> a traditional geocache is at the coordinates listed on the app or the website. You turn up to those coordinates and you look for the geocache and you find the geocache and then you sign the logbook. That's it. You just, you go to the location and there it is. As a famous meerkat mate say, symbols. <laughs> <laughs> And then the next being multi-cache is quite similar to, to a traditional, but you go to a couple of different spots. There might be something a little bit interesting about each different spot, or it could be just a nice little tour around, but I feel like the multi-cache is kind of a, a multi-waypointed traditional cache, realistically. Mm, the one with the yellow or the orange icon. Hit me up with the colour for the mystery cache there, Captain Terra. It's blue and it's got a question mark. <laughs> <laughs> uh, mystery geocaches they're a little bit of a, uh, a catch-all so often with a mystery cache you'll have to solve some sort of puzzle before you set out uh, to know exactly where the geocache is sometimes there's a little bit of a puzzle or a little bit of a trick to get into the geocache like it you know may have a padlock on it or something sometimes it's got elements of the multi-cache too so there might be extra waypoints they can be a little bit crazy, they can be pretty simple too, but really read the description, have a look at the difficulty terrain, see what you're in for, and give it a crack. 
And don't forget, a mystery icon may also be a challenge cache. So if it's a challenge cache, normally the name of the geocache will have the word challenge in it somewhere. Um, so yeah, just make sure that when you're trying to solve a puzzle, it is actually a puzzle. I guess these days, the next most common icon you'll see is a form of virtual cache. Can you give me a, a quick rundown? Because there's a couple of different types of virtual caches There's kind now. of two, really, isn't there? So there's the straight-up virtual, which were an old type, but they've been brought back in a limited release. Uh, and they're a light blue icon with a little ghost fellow on them. Uh, so there's no physical container at a virtual cache. Again, read the description, find out what you need to do. Normally, you need to email the cache owner the answers to a couple of questions. Uh, some of them take a photo, just basically to prove that you were there. Um, but, but I find virtuals nearly always take you to somewhere pretty interesting. Interesting. Similarly, we then have the Earth Cache, which is blue with an Earth icon. They're, they're generally more geological. So if you have a really pretty building or statue that you want to bring someone to, it's probably going to be a virtual. If you have like a sheer cliff or a really cool mountain. Some geological feature. Yeah, yeah. Earth Cache. There are a couple of other types that make up the small percentage of geocaches hidden. There's, you know, the letterbox, where I go, webcam. But you can find more information about them in that help centre. And the link, again, is going to be in the episode notes. So I think that probably covers geocache types pretty well. That's how I describe the main types, yeah. The next question that I hear a lot is about mystery or puzzle caches. And that is, what do I do if I can't solve the puzzle? My immediate thing is... Make sure you're not trying to solve a puzzle that's too difficult for you. I know that I just can't do D5 puzzles because I'm not the smartest fish in the pond. I often can't do D3 puzzles, so... <laughs> <laughs> what should people do if they can't solve a puzzle and they really, really want to find that cache? As I just said, I am not a huge puzzle solver and by far there are more on the map I have not solved than have. I will do one of two things if I'm happy to just sort of sit on a puzzle and grind it out over months and years, which has been known to happen. I will just do that and every now and then I'll have another look at it and see if something else stands out to me. And you know what? There is heaps of resources out there in Facebook groups and probably if you do a bit of Googling, there's some books out there that give you some sort of hot tips on how to go about solving puzzles and you might find some answers in there. Well, the other thing is looking around at other puzzle caches in an area. Sometimes areas will follow a bit of a theme so you might find an easier puzzle that you can solve which gives you some ideas for the harder puzzle. Or the second option is I always say reach out to the cache owner and explain to them, hey, I'm trying to solve your puzzle. I've tried this, this, and this. I'm not sure if I'm on the right track. Can you give me a little nudge? Yeah, definitely. So I own a couple of puzzle caches in a GeoArt that we put out in Stanthorpe. And I very often get messages from people asking me how to solve them. And I'll often send back a question to them being like, do you want like a soft nudge or do you want to be like pulled by the hand in the right direction? Like how much help do you want? Because there are people that just want a little bit of help and you know, I'm, I'm happy to help out whoever asked me. So yeah, I think my, my first thing is if you really want to find that puzzle and you really can't solve it, just ask the CEO. They're, they're more than happy normally to give you a push in the right direction. I think it's generally uncool to sort of reach out and get coordinates or a solution off somebody else or to hand out solutions. I've not come across a geocache owner who is happy for that to happen. So <laughs> if you want to solve it, like put the effort in, at least give it a red hot go. Well, I think that solved that question. Oh, well. <laughs> <laughs> the next couple of questions we have are about finding geocaches. The, the first one is, what do we do with the toys or random bits in the containers? Now, I want to go off to a side tangent for this question. 
and just mentioned that not all geocaches should have little toys or side bits in them. If you have a geocache in like a national park or yeah. a conservation area, they're not meant to have little toys in them. I have a geocache in an area like that and it's constantly getting swaps in it and I just have to keep driving to the other side of the city to take them out again. So first of all, let's just make sure that we're putting toys in the right containers. And not poking toys into like a container that's clearly too small. That happens. Yeah, yeah, like trying to fit like a six inch stuffy into an eclipse tin. So, so what what do we do with the toys and bits in the containers, though? I think it pays to understand why there's swaps in there. So a big premise of geocaching in the early days was to take something and leave something. And that was kind of a lot of the allure of the game. And it stuck around a lot. I believe, like, family-type geocachers love the swapping thing. I've gone geocaching with kids, and they love it. There's little toys and stuff in there. They can drop one in. They can take one out. Personally, what do I do with them? Nothing. Like, if I'm out geocaching by myself, I will sign the logbook, add my little note in there, have a look for trackables, or see if there's anything interesting in the geocache. But that's kind of it. I don't pay a lot of attention to it. Sometimes if the geocache has, like, gotten wet and there's gross stuff in there, I'll, like, pull it out, because that's that's not fun for families or anybody. But I, I personally don't do anything with the toys and bits and pieces in a container. What about you? I don't normally take anything with me when I'm geocaching, other than my phone and my pen. I don't want to leave either of them in a container. <laughs> so I normally just have a little look around because I really appreciate swaps most of the time. You know, sometimes people have handmade something or they've put some effort into a swap and I like having a look and appreciating them for a moment or two. And then I just pack it all back in and put the container back away because, you know, I, I don't want to carry around the swaps with me. It's not my thing, but, you know, like you've said, I've seen kids that, or adults, that absolutely love swapping. I think the important thing is if you're going to take something, make sure you do leave something. General rule of thumb is leave something better than what you took. Although, I did accidentally once leave my car key in a geocache, and I think that was taking it a bit too far. I don't know, I've seen your car. Wow, it's my old car. <laughs> <laughs> the second question is also to do with containers. And that is, what should I do if there is no space left on the log or the case container is broken? It feels like kind of a, what do I need to do if the geocache in general needs maintenance? Well, conveniently, there is a log type for that. If you find the geocache and it clearly just needs a little bit of love, sometimes you can give a geocache a little bit of love um, emptying out water, you know, pulling out yucky swaps is one. Some people will carry around spare logbooks, and that can be an option, but leave the original logbook in there. But there is a log type, so if it needs some love from the geocache owner, something a bit more serious, you can post a log, which is called a needs maintenance log. And you can basically just put some notes in there and say, hey, you know, this particular thing is wrong with your geocache, might pay to go and have a look at it and ensure that we've got a quality experience for everybody wanting to find this in the future. Yeah, and then as the cache owner, you get an email saying, hey, so-and-so have put a needs maintenance log on your geocache. You should probably go and have a look at this. So then they can go out and they can have a look at the geocache. They can then go home and mark that they've looked at it and everything's fine and dandy again. And it's a great way to make sure that the geocaches aren't just kind of left to rot and die because that's where the game starts to get a bad name for itself. It's actually really handy when people log and need maintenance because exactly that. As, as a cache owner, you see those come up in your emails. I've got one came through a couple of days ago. It's a geocache that's meant to be attached to a tree and it's no longer attached to the tree. And they said, hey, look. The geocache is fine, it's just sitting on the ground, I've poked it near the base of the tree, but just so you know, it's fallen out of the tree. It's like, excellent, I know next time I'm down that way or I can go make a special trip in the next little bit and go and give it some love. Yeah, logging and needs maintenance is really important to make sure that the game looks as appealing and runs as smoothly as possible. 
I've gotten a lot of questions about muggles, and it's generally along the lines of, if I turn up to GZ and there's a muggle there, what do I do? So I'm going to split this into two different questions. The first one is, do I wait out the muggle? Do I leave? Or do I just go up and tell the muggle about geocaching and get them to help me look for it? I know what I will do. I will just wait them out. Or if I'm in a rush, I will leave because I do not want to have to talk to strangers. That's that's my thing. <laughs> um, I am an introvert. I don't want to talk to people that I don't know. Uh, what about you? I am exactly the same. I'm a solo geocacher, often by design. And yeah, an introvert, I don't particularly want to speak to people. But I've been out geocaching in a group, and there's the one chatty person who's like, oh, there's people sitting at the table. No worries, I'll go have a chat. And I was like, oh my god, can you not? And I'm like trying to hide behind the car or something. So clearly there there is options here, right? Like, yeah. whatever you're comfortable with. I'm the type of person to go, oh, there's muggles here. I'll walk or drive away and try again later. My last geocache attempt exactly that happened. There were people picnicking under the tree and I looked at it from like 50 metres away and just said, no, I'll come back another day. Um, So yeah, there are some people who will go and explain what's going on as well. That's not me. (laughs) No, but I've seen it happen and I've seen it go well. Oh yeah, it nearly always goes well. My main concern though is that if it's explained to someone who may not be as fun-loving as many geocachers, then are we exposing that geocache to the potential of getting muggled? Because we use muggled as an expression of the cache has been taken away. So should we should we really explain what's going on and risk it? I think that unless you desperately need to find that geocache for some reason, I probably wouldn't. Yeah. I think the only exception to my rule is, and this has happened twice maybe is I'm looking for a geocache and then the police turn up for whatever reason they were driving past I was looking dodgy I know one time I did have somebody call the police because I was looking dodgy and I am a thousand percent open with police I will tell them exactly what I'm doing show them the app or back in the day my GPS this is what I'm doing this is the container and they're usually like fine with it they just want to make sure I'm not doing something nefarious that's the only exception I'll talk to police but I'll yeah stay (laughs) stay away from other other folk Definitely. And I'm going to throw you throw a little side tangent out here. And we've had an experience together when we've been geocaching and we've come across a muggle and it's been a muggle who lives in the area where the geocache has been hidden. And they're not particularly happy that we are near their property and they've been quite um, aggressive. What is kind of the right approach to that? Because I know that it can throw people a little bit. Um, So do you want to share our experience with that? Yeah, old mate was a bit upset with us. Uh, Thankfully, I am a six foot six tall male. And it was really just a case of get out. And it was just a, yeah, sorry, buddy, for making you feel like we've intruded. Let us get out of your hair. We mean no harm. And leave. It might be the type of thing that you do want to mention to the cache owner. Perhaps in that needs maintenance log of, I had this experience at this geocache. It might be something you want to look into, but I, I don't believe getting my name onto a piece of paper in a container in the bush is worth upsetting residents, locals, citizens. Yeah, I concur. I think that you definitely need to let the cache owner know. Uh, it might be a misunderstanding of property lines or something like that. It might just be someone who thinks that the road next to their house is their own private driveway. But I think it's something that the case owner really does need to be let known about. And if the case owner isn't active anymore, I'd be letting the local reviewer know that this thing is going on. 
um, just for the safety of everyone, really, because we're not all six foot six men. Exactly. Yeah, I'm a very fortunate in that regard. But unfortunately, it happens extremely rarely, but it has been known to happen. It's got a weird, weird dark place, didn't it? Yeah, well, you know, geocaching sometimes. <laughs> I, I just I just felt like it was an important thing to let the listeners know that sometimes it can go wrong. But as long as I think that you're polite to the muggle and you explain that you're going to leave now. Well, also, like you said, we've had a combined experience of what, 20-something years of geocaching. That's happened to me literally once. I can't remember it happening... Another time, so I'm I'm pretty happy with those odds. Lastly, about muggles. When you arrive to GZ and there's a muggle there and they're having a picnic under the tree, so you vamoose, you don't look for it. Is that a DNF or a right note or a needs maintenance because there's too many muggles around? What is the right approach for that? Yeah, one of them. I, I don't have a hard and fast rule for this. I generally think if I look for it and I did not find it, it's a DNF. Hence, mm-hmm. DNF did not find if I didn't attempt it and I feel the need to write a note, I will. If I don't get anywhere near GZ, I may not put a log on at all. Um, but I wouldn't put a needs maintenance, really. And the only reason I would ever put a needs maintenance is like, ah, oh, there's like an entire town market has been set up at GZ. <laughs> that, 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 if there's somebody picnicking, it's like, yeah, I'll just write a note and be like, muggles in the way. That's yeah. it. Yeah, I often won't write anything because I don't want to spam the cash owner with hey, you've got a geocache in Brisbane City and there was a person walking past. Mm. Yeah, you hide geocaches in public places and the public tend to be there sometimes. Funny that. It's really rude, though. (laughs) (laughs) Awesome. I think that covers muggles pretty well. Generally, my advice is to just wait them out or to leave and, you know, either write a note or do nothing. Be respectful and remember that we don't want to aggravate as many people as possible. Yeah, you had a bit of a judgment call on that one. Yeah. Whilst we're still speaking about logging geocaches, though, the next two questions are both about logging geocaches. And the first one, you you kind of mentioned it just before. If you're looking for a geocache and you can't find it, it, it might be because, you know, are having a bad day or it may not be there. Should you log a DNF? We had a question saying, should you log a DNF or just leave it because we don't want to look bad? I think it's important myself to log a DNF if I can't find a geocache because as a cache owner, if someone can't find my geocache, it like pings in the back of my mind that this person couldn't find my geocache. And I have a couple of difficult geocaches out there. So I will generally look at the geocacher themselves and be like, oh, it's only their second find. You know, it might actually be there. But then if I get another DNF and then a third, then I'm like, okay, I really need to go and look for this geocache. What what do you think? I think we need to remember that there's no points in geocaching. So it's not like a find gets you a point and a DNF loses you a point. I see no downside to logging a DNF if you legitimately looked for it and couldn't find it. Like you say, it alerts the cache owner and they can start to see patterns. Uh, and, and often when you log a DNF, you can add a little bit of detail in that log as well. But I don't see a downside to logging DNFs. I would encourage people to do it. And yeah, like I said, it's not like you, you lose anything by logging a DNF. It just doesn't add one to your find count. That's literally it. And I don't think people need to feel bad about not being able to find a geocache either. Like I've turned up to look for geocaches before and I have had no chance of finding them. Go back with someone else the next day and they're like, oh, is it that thing right there? (laughs) Yep, been there. Yeah, so log your DNFs. It's not going to make you look bad or make you look inadequate as a geocacher. We all have DNFs and 
it again helps the cache owner know what's generally happening with their geocaches. Makes me wonder. I wonder how many DNFs I've logged. It'll be in the hundreds but I wonder how many there were. Hmm. And lastly, if I forget my pen, is it still okay to log a find? Can I give the answer that I I heard or read the other day from a previous guest you had, Orange Crew? So hello, Orange Crew. He said if he gets to a geocache and doesn't have a pen, he will like find a pen. He'll go to a shop and buy a pen, whatever it is. And I just like admire that dude. Look, the guidelines say if you find the geocache and you sign the logbook, that's a find. So it kind of relies on you signing the logbook. And I totally get that. Having said that, I have forgotten a pen and a lot of cache owners will be happy for you to log a find with permission if you say, hey, look, I forgot my pen or like the logbook was wet. But here's a photo of me holding the geocache. That can stand in and qualify as a find for a lot of cache owners. I have used many, many, many different types of makeup to sign my name in a logbook. Yeah, right. The old, like, green leaf over a pointy stick trick. Yeah. Yep. Um, a bit of charcoal and a wood. Yep, done that. Or remember your pen. Yeah. You always get out of the car, I'm always like, right, car keys, phone, pen. That's my checklist of three. <laughs> I'm probably not going to condone signing your name in blood. I have inadvertently done that after a slight mishap with a fence on an FTF race, but that's it. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Wouldn't recommend. Certainly not in the current climate. Feels a bit icky. Yeah. So I guess I would definitely try to sign it with the leaf and stick method or a bit of charcoal (laughs) or a bit of makeup or something. But if I have just done like a three hour hike to get to this geocache and I have lost my pen somewhere on the walk, I am taking a photo and hoping that that cache owner will accept my log because I am not walking back three hours to get a pen. But conversely, if you're standing 50 metres from your car, walk back to the car and get a pen. Yeah. Or a bit of oil on your dipstick oh or my- something. <laughs> we, can't, we can't condone net just putting any sort of liquid on a logbook. That's not... <laughs> Some oil, lipstick, blood. Whatever works. No. <laughs> Take a pen or a pencil if you haven't got your licence yet. Plenty, plenty of geocaches have a pen in them anyway, and I find that most of the time they work or they'll work with some persuasion. So that's all the questions that I've gotten from the new geocaches in the community. And when I often ask people for advice for new geocaches, they say get along to events and meet your local geocaches and make friends and make a connection, that kind of thing. There are a couple of different types of geocache events though, and we didn't talk about them in the cache types. So I guess my last question for you before I let you go off today, Captain Terra, is what are the different types of event caches and which is your favourite? Oh yeah, events, because events are always good to get along to. And if you've not been to an event before, you need to do it. Just whatever the next event is that's coming up, just get along to it. You'll see a group of people and you walk in and be like, hi, I'm new here. This is my first event. And the little circle of people will open up and swallow you in and want to hear about it. And That's really cool. Seen that happen for 12 years and it's fantastic. Get along to an event. Everybody's recommended it. Uh, There's sort of four types of geocaching event. The first one is called a geocaching event. Uh, (laughs) (laughs) Wow. (laughs) Anyone can hold one sort of any time they want and it is a social gathering of geocaches. Often it's a bit of a, you know, barbecue in the park or just a meet and greet type of thing. You go and chat to other geocaches and you meet them. It's pretty cool. The second type is around for 2020 and 2021, which is the community celebration events, which are an extra little type, which is designed to celebrate 20 years of geocaching. We're generally seeing that those look the same as standard events, just a bit of a meet and greet, a little bit of fun there. I do believe that the community celebration events are a minimum of two hours, though, which the normal events are not. 
Yeah, normal events are half an hour, so they're a longer event, which is kind of nice. Mm. The third type that I'll talk about is, because we've got one coming up this year in April, is a mega event. A mega event is an event that is attended by 500 or more people, so a standard event will normally have 30 to 80, so a mega event is quite big and held over a couple of days and a bit more regional in nature. So there's one of those in April in Queensland, which is pretty cool. And the fourth geocache event type, which I think is my favourite, is called a Saito or a Cito or a however. Keto. <laughs> <laughs> Never heard it called a Kito, but right. Uh, which is cash in, trash out, which is basically, it's an event type where you do some sort of environmental action. Nine times out of ten, it's a rubbish pickup event. So you get, so the organiser will give you a bag and you walk around the park, pick up, rubbish and you make a big pile at the end for council to come pick up and they're really cool because you get to have quite a direct positive impact on the game board that we play on. It's my favourite type because I really like getting out and making the world a cleaner, happier, nicer place than when I arrived. They're a little bit of a rarer type than standard events but uh, there's usually a couple per year in any sort of area of southeast Queensland at least anyway. Plus the same social interaction, you get to meet people, walk around, pick up rubbish with folks. I think that's kind of cool. Make Captain Planet feel a little bit happy. Yeah. I think my favourite Saito event that I ever went to was one where instead of picking up trash, we were planting trees and like weeding the area. There was a Brisbane event and yeah, I, I remember that one vividly because it was different and it was fun and you got sweaty and there was proof at the end of the day that you did good. So yeah, quite like Saito's. Well, thank you so much for sitting down with me to celebrate one year of podcasting, Captain Terra. It's been fun kind of just bantering back and forth with you about the questions and i hope that the listeners got some knowledge out of it yeah they're cool questions like you said they're not exactly in black and white in the help center and a little bit cultural so it's nice to share i guess our experience and give people a leg up in this cool game thank you so much for listening to one year of my podcast i can't wait to see what the next year brings if you would like to be a guest on an episode or have a topic you would like me to cover, you can message me through my geocaching profile. The link is in the episode notes. Happy geocaching!